Hello, and welcome to another installment of Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates you don't need a great deal of eyesight in order to be a visionary. I am, as always, your humble host and correspondent. My name is John Steinberg, joined in tandem by my wonderfully talented co-host who goes by the name of Santino Maoni, guys, we are back once again for another great episode of Visionaries. We have taken a bit of a hiatus, haven't put out an episode in a while, but John and I are back. We're doing Visionaries again. So excited to bring you this episode. We're going to start off as we always do with our words to live by. John, this week I got to select the quote that we were going to be looking at in this episode. I'll read it out for you guys, yourself, and the listeners. So here's the quote When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that was said by Joe Kennedy. John, when you hear that quote, what does it invoke in you? What, what kind of reactions do you have? Give me your thoughts. Oh, it puts me on a baseball diamond for some reason. Like, okay, the team is down, you know, by about three runs and we've got to energize folks. And I'm kidding. It really uh, gets to the core of how to get the most out of this life. What to do, it's kind of the thesis behind this very podcast. What happens when you are thrown into the deep end of the pool and you don't totally know how to swim? You have to figure things out really quickly. When challenges come your way, you have the option of turning away, putting your head into the sand, pretending like whatever obstacle in front of you doesn't actually exist. You have any number of probably harmful options that you can go with that might be easier, but the most difficult decision, difficult part of facing those challenges is merely doing it. Saying what you're going to do, these loud proclamations about hey, one day I'm going to be a state senator, and then I'm going to be a United States senator, and then that will bump me up into a potential road into the Oval Office. That's all great and fine on paper, but putting one foot in front of the other, executing without being hampered by all the problems, all the difficulties, the stuff that's going on in your mind, which makes it troublesome and sometimes challenging to move forward. You need to be at your best when the circumstances kind of turn the situation into mm, something rivaling the worst. What do you think? Yeah, I think the way you close it out is exactly what I wanted to segue into. It's about, you know, Let's say you have a dream. I'll use myself for an example, wanting to be a sports analyst, working at a company such as ESPN or Fox Sports, one of those big sports networks. If I put it this way, if every time something went wrong, if I, you know, in, in creating content for my sports podcast or doing my sports TikTok, things like that, if every single time something went wrong, oh, a video doesn't get the amount of views I want. You know, whatever the issue may be, or even if I'm just kind of almost overthinking in my own head and creating problems that aren't there, when it starts to feel tough and it starts to feel like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Oh, it's not going to work. Oh, I'm doing this for all the wrong reasons. Oh, you know, I'm never going to get to where I want to be. When you start to feel that and you get those kind of intrusive thoughts coming in and things might not be going your way, that's when you need to be more kind of stuck in the ground, 
and rooted in your dream and beliefs more than ever. That's when you have to show your proof to yourself and prove to everybody that, listen, I can still push through the tough times. I still, this is still my dream and I still believe I can achieve this even when things are not going my way. That's when you truly, truly know that it's, it's something that you really, really want because you won't push through those hard times unless it's something that you really want and it's worth pushing through those hard times to get, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And when things go awry, as they so often do, the worst thing to do is to be indecisive, to just kind of stand there as things happen passively. Um, yeah, you need to be taking charge of everything that's going on. Those are the best kinds of people, the people where, okay, let's say we get into, uh, let's hope this never happens, but it's a car accident. There's a version of a person who's sitting shotgun. They're not even the one who was driving and it's not a near fatal accident, but it is an accident. And that person just kind of goes into a state of shock. They clamp up, remain silent, and uh, they don't really know what to do. And then the other person, maybe the driver in this instance, they know, whew, okay, that was an accident, that was scary, but I can't sit here and pretend as if it didn't happen. So I've got to reach into the glove compartment, get out um, my, uh, my registration, pull out my license, and be ready to meet that challenge because I don't know, people who can't operate in high-pressure situations, mm, they're not the folks that you typically want to have around. So yes, meeting those challenges in your own life, be they career-related, personal-related, in any way that you see fit to analyze things, meeting the moment. So when the going gets tough, indeed, as Mr. Kennedy said, the tough get going. Definitely. We'll move on to our next segment, Handprints Hall of Fame. I also got to select the newest inductee that we were going to uh, do in this show. I chose Alessandro Zanardi, Alex for short. And Alessandro Zanardi is a former Formula One driver. He is a two-time kart series winner, a gold medal Paralympian, and overall a man who exemplified what it means to be a champion. So growing up in Bologna, Italy, Zanardi dreamed of racing for the for Ferrari, and he started racing karts at only 13 years old. So at, at the age of 13, he was already taking strides and living out his dream in a much, much lesser sense than the dream that he eventually achieved, which was racing for Ferrari and becoming a professional Formula One driver. Um, and one of the words I want to describe him or use to describe him is an innovator, because at only the age of 13 years old, he created the kart that he was racing he, he did it all on his own, making the wheels out of a dustbin and some old pipes that he found, you know, just lying around, um, lying around his dad's shop that he owned. And he proved himself to be, again, that word that I described, an innovator at such a young age, which was extremely impressive for the fact that he didn't let the circumstances he was in, he didn't allow that to prevent him from being able to do what he wanted to do at that young of an age. Moving forward, he started racing professionally in 1988, and after that, in 1991, he went on to compete at the International Formula 3000 Series, where he finished second place in the championship race. In 1993 season, he was involved in an off-track bicycle accident, 
And due to this, he was unable to finish his 1993 season. Despite all of those injuries, though, he once again showed perseverance and he fought his way back to racing in the 1994 season. Moving forward about seven years, in 2001, Zanardi once again returned to the cart with the Mo Nunn team. In the race held at last, this is like a very, very difficult you know, ta- uh, city to pronounce. I'm just going to say Germany, for, you know, because I can't pronounce the specific place that it was in. But in the Germany, umlauts can be tough. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to try to. Germany, um, it was the, this race, it was the day that everything changed for Zanardi. His long-awaited win, he had never won a race at the, at, at the cart yet. And his long-awaited race was inching closer and closer as he was in the lead for the majority of the entire race. But coming out of his last pit stop, he got into a, in a, into an unfortunate crash with fellow racer Alex Tagliani. And Zanardi was left without both of his legs after having to go to the hospital. They were able to save his life, uh, fortunately, but they had to amputate both of his legs. After that, he didn't let this stop him. He then created a custom-designed limb to provide him with more flexibility with the aim to return to racing at some point. And by 2003, just two years after the accident, he did eventually return to racing. And that once again just kind of shows the perseverance that he exemplified throughout his career and his life in general. And that's kind of why, in a nutshell, I kind of chose to put him in the Handprints Hall of Fame because I thought everything that he did throughout his life and everything he showed us and the way that he persevered through all these different challenges and obstacles he faced in his life really, really warranted him being put in the Handprints Hall of Fame. John, what did you think of this selection? Oh, I thought it was fantastic. Very inspired. What we like to highlight on this program are those visionaries where, especially in a situation such as this, an individual, a race car driver, found himself in a position where he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to continue on with his career behind the wheel. And he was able to come up with a new strategy, invent like you said earlier, be an innovator in addition to a visionary who was able to craft. Now, listen, I I haven't driven a car in quite some time. That's uh, neither here nor there. The fact is that this guy was behind the eight ball. Was he going to be able to continue on with the career that had been in his blood, something that he had been working on since uh, his earliest days and with some creative thinking no doubt help from others and the gall if you will the audacity to believe that in spite of his condition following this accident that he would be able to continue on with his career as a race car driver the type of inspiring singular could only happen on planet Earth and um, in this era. That's the type of story that we love here on Visionary. So I thought it was an incredibly inspired selection. And um, I mean, there's this craze going on, at least in the United States and definitely in Europe, with F1 racing, with uh, the Netflix show that's uh, made it so popular here in the United States. And so highlighting a gentleman such as this, I think uh, a great choice, Santino. Yeah, and like we always say, you imagine all of our inductees 
putting their hands down in the dirt, in the concrete, right in front of the TCL Chinese Theater, Grauman's Chinese Theater, enshrining them forever in our Handprints Hall of Fame. That's what we'd like you guys to kind of picture when we do this segment. But moving on, we're going to go to Profiles and Courage. And John, I know that we were unable to get a guest for this episode. So what discussion or conversation did you want us to have for this segment this week? So part of the reason for the hiatus, uh, we had a death in the family. Um, it was not unexpected, but nevertheless, uh, it was still quite a shock. So it forced me, um, as I have been forced a couple of times over the course of my life, into considering death, uh, grieving, and all related topics. So the first time that I really encountered this part of life uh, was the passing of my grandfather, 2004, died at the age of 80. Now, he left behind a widow, my grandmother, who passed away uh, two weeks ago, who has been in a, hmm, she had a stroke uh, about 30 some odd years ago. And so she required round the clock care and had difficulty walking and communicating was unable to form new memories. So as I say, she was not in the greatest of um, health. However, at 94 years old, she was the matriarch of my father's side of the family. She lived in the same house from 19, I believe 63 until her passing two weeks ago. And we had to take out, you know, a reverse mortgage to keep the house uh, and fund her round-the-clock care. Um, so now we have to give, not give, but we have to forfeit the house. Uh, we have a year to do it. So not only um, losing my grandmother, but also losing this house. And this idea of loss and grieving and how to deal with it from both, you know, I'm 36, Santino's 20, from differing perspectives is, uh, is interesting to me. Now, when a 94-year-old person dies and they have had the great fortune of leading a long, illustrious life dotted with achievements, contributions, and profound experiences, it's not a tragedy like it is when I had a, a really good friend who passed away a few years ago uh, from a car accident. But in either case, um, what I have sort of learned, and there's no right answer to how we respond to these kinds of things, how we internalize death and um, how we express ourselves during the grieving process. But I always choose to number one, think about what this person's life was like before I even met them. Uh, in the case of you know my grandmother, that was quite some time, 60 plus years. And I think about her being the crossword puzzle expert that she was, being the film aficionado that she was, 
into sort of dry wit, sometimes highbrow comedy. Uh, her as a person, as opposed to my grandmother, same deal with my friend that passed away a couple years ago. He was his own person outside of simply being my friend. So I always choose to celebrate what they were able to do in their lives and uh, all the moments that gave them joy and levity as opposed to simply remembering the end, the death. And for me, and I'm not sure where you stand on this, Santino, but it is in that celebration of life, not in remembering how did they pass, how old were they when they passed, what kind of state were they in when uh, they were taken from us. I choose to remember their actual lives, them as human beings, and uh, I never forget that image. The image of the coffin at the end, that's not the image that stays with me. It's them at their prime doing what they wanted to do in life. And uh, that is how I have chosen to kind of process grief and the passing of somebody um, that I loved and cared about. So, yeah, yes. I, I've no, I've never personally exp- had to have that experience yet of losing someone that's close to me and in, in, my, in my family. I have lost my grandfather, or I did lose my grandfather, but I wasn't born yet, so I can't like saying that I was close with him. I can't really say that just because I hadn't re- ever really met him. I've heard a ton of stories about him and the kind of person that he was. I just can't really. I don't consider that really deeply affecting me just because I never had a, a personal relationship with him and never really met him. The closest I could kind of, I guess, talk about this is I had a close friend who lost her grandfather. Um, and I guess I can kind of talk about, cause she's the same age as I am. So I can kind of talk about what I noticed, at least in, from, from her perspective and her experiences, because I have no personal experience to kind of touch on, fortunately, but in terms of what I kind of noticed with my friend when she lost her grandfather was when it first happened, it didn't seem, and I'm not saying that it didn't affect her, but I noticed there were, there were varying stages of grief that she was kind of going through and, and just kind of how she was dealing with the loss in general. Initially, when it first happened, when you would see her or even when I would see her, it, it almost – you wouldn't think that anything had happened. You wouldn't think that she had just suffered a, a tremendous loss you know, for herself and her family. It didn't, it didn't appear that way. But as time went on, you kind of noticed that it, it, it weighed on her more and more and that you, you noticed her going into these stages of talking about him a lot and really, really missing him, which does make sense. And I think it's very interesting to examine the different phases of grief that you can go through because – the different stages you'll you'll I guess experience are it's going to be different for every single person. That's one thing, because it depends on the the closeness that you had with the person that passed away. It depends on even just who they were, your relationship with that person, and then it also depends on yourself on how you handle things like that. Whether it be that you kind of shut people out in a way and you kind of just want to be alone and kind of compartmentalize what has happened and how you're going to deal with it. Or if you like to be surrounded by loved ones and that what kind of, that's what kind of helps you get through it. Grief is going to show itself 
in so many different ways, being de- dealing with the loss of a family member, loved one, friend, any kind of per- person that was close to you, dealing with that loss, everybody deals with it in a different way. And I think that's just really important to make that point for the listeners is that there's not, you know, one way to deal with loss. There's not one way to grieve. There's, there's, it, it shows itself in so many different ways. And I feel like you'd agree with me on that. Yes, I do. Uh, grief can uh, take form in a number of different manners. Um, and with respect to, yeah, losing somebody that you do love, that you've cared about, a person who's meant a lot to you, uh, I do, as I say, find it instructive to really try, if you're going to honor that person, to really kind of study their life a little bit examine maybe portions of their life that you weren't greatly familiar with. Uh, With my really close friend that, you know, died tragically a couple of years ago, I wanted to know what he was like before I even met him. I met him when I was about 12. Um, He had a whole life before he and I even became friends. He had interests that I didn't even know about, things that were important to him that he didn't talk about. Uh, And it was learning those details, learning about the version of my friend who really had nothing to do with me and our friendship, that was important and seeing him as his own person. And same deal with my grandmother, uh, seeing her as a young woman growing up in Los Angeles, a young Jewish woman growing up in a climate where we're, I mean, we're like the Holocaust, um, and her family was extremely religious. So what might that have been like? Her getting married at a really young age. These are all things that I did not think about a great deal when I was younger. But as I grew older, hopefully a bit more wise, did attempt to see her as her own person, independent of being my grandmother. So that when we're at the funeral and I have the ability to eulogize her, I cite, oh, she and my grandfather, their first date was at this place called the Apple Pan, which was the basis for the Peach Pit, um, where everyone would hang out on the show Beverly Hills 90210. Restaurant's been around since 1947. It's still there. It's still a Los Angeles landmark. And people don't have stories like that anymore. So my point being that for me, that has been the best, uh, most productive way to grieve. But as Santino has said, there is no handbook, no guide, no grieving for dummies, as it were. It's so personal and... um, a matter of it, this is when feelings come into play. Uh, take the analytics out of everything. How do you feel about it? How are you going to be the best version of yourself with this new development that happened in your life? And um, yeah, I think the the best way that I've been able to grieve, and I've I've now been in the uh, unfortunate position. I've had a bunch of friends actually that have passed over the years and I always try to go back 
forget about whatever the circumstances were that led uh, to them being taken and focus on what they were like when they were the version of themselves that um, they'd always wanted to be. And that has been really, really helpful. But grieve however you see fit in order to come to terms with this. Um, it's not something we can be ignorant about. We do have to have some type of a working relationship with uh, the end of our lives and what that means. Sometimes it means that, you know, a house that's been in your family for 60 plus years, that's gonna have to go. Sometimes it means any number of things. Grieving is very personal and there should be no expectations um, that are on the table for people that are in the process of that. Yeah, and the last thing I'm gonna say though, cause I, I did mention that I had never personally experienced any of this. I've been asked the question before by some of my friends and even just family in general of saying like, oh, well, how would you react in that situation? And it's almost like saying, well, oh, how would you react if you were, if you were a soldier in war? Like, what would you do? It's like, I don't really know. I can't answer that question unless like I'm in, the, you know what I mean? I can't answer that question because I have no prior experience to base how I would react. You know, you know what I mean? That So I, mm -hmm. I always found that question kind of interesting and I'll say it now. Like, yeah, I have no idea how I'm going to grieve or what, how I'm going to be, how I'm going to handle losing a loved one or a family member or a friend or whoever it may be. I know that, you know, I'm going to hand, I, I can say this, I'll handle it in the way that is the best for me because that's all I can do. But in terms of trying to answer that question, I always found it kind of interesting how they would ask me that. Cause I don't know how you would expect me to answer that or vice versa. Like if I asked you that question and you were in my position, how how would you be able to answer that question? You can't. I, I think it's an impossible question to answer, but I figured I'd bring that up because it was very interesting to me as to even why they would ask that question. Again, when I do experience it, all I know is that I'm gonna I'm gonna deal with it and experience it and handle it in the best way that I can and in the best way for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move from that into our next segment, which is representation and respect in the media. So I got to pick the piece of pop culture to be analyzed this week. And it's a, it's a television show, a little show called C that grabbed my attention the moment I became um, an Apple TV Plus subscriber. Now, the show stars Jason Momoa, Alfre Woodard, a number of other folks that you'd recognize are in the cast. And it's about, okay, how to summarize the plot of, uh, of C. So it takes place what appears to be a couple hundred years or even a thousand years after a virus has wiped out civilization. And our story centers upon a group of folks that have been able to survive in a severely, um, I'll call it a truncated version of planet earth and they do so as their ability to see has really gone away so sight in the world of this television program 
is one of the great casualties of the virus that has basically wiped out the vast majority of human civilization. Now, there are a pair of young folks that are sighted, and they are the ones who are imperiled about, well, how can we manipulate that we have these two individuals who can see um, into our benefit. And so Jason Momoa portrays the leader of this new society. He has a name that, so nobody has conventional English names. So the names are a little challenging to recall, but he plays the leader of this group that we follow who have to work in tandem, who have to work as a collective in order to really get the most out of their society because no one can see. So I found it to be an interesting approach to this topic. We always like to discuss, okay, how are folks with visual impairments being represented on screen or in the pages of novels, music, etc. What did you think of C? So I thought it was very interesting. Um, I only I only watched the first two episodes of the first season just to get a, kind of a glimpse as to what it is. And I liked how they kind of put it in this post-apocalyptic world. And, you know, I, 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 from what I got from it, it was about where the deadly virus basically killed most of humanity. But for those who survived, obviously that the group that is still alive came out as blind and they are now making their way into this new, you know, world. That's again, uh, like you said, like what a hundred years into the future probably is what you estimate. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something, something like that. So, and I, I found it interesting because one of the, so when I was like reading up on some reviews after I watched the first two episodes, I read up on like the, on reviews for the entire first season. And one of the things I found talking about like a, this dialogue from the series that says, some say sight was taken from them by God to heal the earth. I found that very interesting. And I'm curious your thoughts on that statement, how you think it might relate to what the show was trying to say. If you, if you even understand what that might mean, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, so there's a whole school of thought out there, religiously inspired, uh, that posits that God is responsible for all things. So if a person were born without sight, without the ability to hear, without the use of legs, hands, arms, etc., that is there by design. And that's there because God is challenging that person. Um, I'm not somebody that subscribes to that way of thinking, but I do understand that, look, <clears throat> In order for folks not to feel quite as alone in the world, in the universe, in their experience as a human being, there's a tendency to want to believe in a higher power, which I do. But then there's also a group that believes that that higher power is responsible for every single individual decision that has been uh, has ever been made. So on the show, there absolutely, I think, would be a crop of characters in a situation like this who would believe that, hey, human beings messed up the world so badly that drastic action needed to be taken. 
And listen, um, you guys are able to survive and have lives, but the higher power that put you on this earth has to take your vision and uh, allocate those resources elsewhere. It's kind of a, it's sort of a coping mechanism, I think, to a degree. A little bit. I also wanted to say, though, too, while I was watching it, am I the only one that kind of got like a Game of Thrones vibe at, at, at points during the first few episodes? Because I just – not that obviously it's not the same storyline as Game of Thrones. Like I'm not comparing the way the – I'm not comparing the story or the plot. I'm just saying there were certain aspects of the show, at least from the first few episodes, that gave me a Game of Thrones vibe and kind of put me in that setting, if that makes sense. Totally. That's a very, um, very insightful uh, commentary. The director, Francis Lawrence, uh, also presided over productions like I Am Legend and a um, couple of the Hunger Games films. Uh, also, yeah, uh, it, 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 it's that makes sense, though, that you're saying that, though, because he kind of he took aspects of that. And again, I, didn't even, I we haven't I don't know if you watched the whole first season, but I didn't. Even in the first few episodes, you kind of you, you do get that feeling. So I think it's good that we both bring that up because the director definitely took aspects of things like the Hunger Games and um, what, what, what was the first one that you said? I am totally blanking. Uh, I am Legend. I am Legend. Yeah, he took aspects of those and kind of brought it into this. And at least in the first few episodes, I kind of felt that. Yeah, uh, there is a. Real now, this is a television show, but it's a television show funded by money from one of the largest companies uh, on planet Earth. So yeah, the from what I can tell, the the production, all of that stuff seems uh, really kind of high. Um, I kind of wonder. This is maybe neither here nor there. So the show stars Jason Momoa who audiences will recognize from Game of Thrones and being Cal Drago on the first couple seasons of that show. Uh, he's also Aquaman. And he's also my wife's celebrity crush. So that was part of why we couldn't watch the show originally, um, just because that's that's her man crush. <laughs> but I do wonder with him, and when we, were, when we were watching, we tried to watch the first episode together. It wasn't for her. I wound up watching the whole first season. I did wonder, because he's got long hair. Um, he looks like a Greek god. I wonder, like, can Jason Momoa, could you ever see him in, like, uh, like an office comedy uh, where he is, no. <laughs> I don't know, uh, like, in a, no. some type of normal job? Or does he always have to be portraying somebody who maybe he has a shirt on, maybe not. Uh, the hair is definitely going to be long. It just, uh, yeah, I, think it's I don't know. Just, just because of the aura that he puts out and just like his persona, I, I could never see him in a show, let's put it this way. I could never see him playing Jim like John Krasinski did in The Office. I could never see that. I could never see him portraying a Michael Scott kind of character, something along those lines. I just couldn't because – He's too almost like rough and tumble. Like he needs to be in, he needs to be like out in the wilderness, like doing some kind of heroic act. I just can't see him in a, like in a, like let's like quote unquote normal role like that. I, I, I couldn't see it. I don't know about you, but just well, everything you said, the hair, the whole, like he, he reminds me of, I don't know if you ever saw, um, oh my God, I can't, I, I'm blanking. Moana. 
Like he reminds mm-hmm. me of Maui from Moana. That's what he strikes me as. Where it's like if he, like, I know Dwayne the Rock Johnson did the voice of Ma- of um, Maui and Moana. If Jason Momoa had done the voice, that would have been perfect because he is what Maui is in that movie. I could never see him doing something again, quote unquote, normal, like sitting in an office or at a desk job. Like I never, I could never see him doing that kind of role. But I don't know about you. Well, like if you were to swap out, let's say Toby from the office and put him in the Jason Momoa role here. I don't know if that's going to work. Couldn't have, no. So I, I could never see that. So I, I suppose, I mean, for Nate, okay. It's good casting because he's a famous name and people like him and obviously women lust after him, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, this is kind of the only type of, he can only really play like an Aquaman or a Cal Drago, or I think his name is uh, like Bubba here, Bubba, Bubba, Bubba Basso or something. Yeah. It's something like that. It's, it's something very unorthodox. And there's a a lot of the language um, that's used here is very sparing. Um, Not a lot of um, Aaron Sorkin long tangents about like the Baltimore Orioles from the 1970s. Instead, it's very, there's a guttural quality to it um, with them communicating in unison. A lot of times when they're trying to get like a group mission uh, to trying to push it to completion. Um, so it's a very spare program as far as dialogue is concerned, uh, which, you know, makes it less enjoyable for folks that can't actually see. Uh, however, I don't know. There's something, there's something weirdly cinematic going on here. Uh, the Jason Momoa as leader in an aspiring group of survivors attempting to live in the aftermath of a cataclysmic plague. There's, there's a lot here um, to sit with. Now I know that the show is, I believe they have just put out the third season. I'm not sure how long it's going to go, but from the perspective of how we tackle things here, definitely an interesting take on the depiction of the visually impaired and i understand the okay like we're going to commute communicate uh in unison so we speak in this tone of voice because we know that when we speak like this it means something serious i don't know um sort of bizarrely fascinating a full recommendation i don't know about that I'm speaking um, on my own behalf, Santino. Would you recommend uh, C to folks? Depends on what you like. I personally kind of like the, these these type of shows because it, it it's this like dystopian again post apocalyptic future kind of vibe, and I I enjoy shows like that. It depends on what kind of person you are. I would recommend it because I enjoy shows like this. Again, depends on what your interests are, but I think overall it's a cool, almost like escape from normalcy kind of show that I that I enjoy watching. And I do, I, I do want to point out, because um, I feel like somebody in the visually impaired community might have given him this note. As a visually impaired person, when I use my phone uh, and I'm typing something out, on the keyboard, there's a tone of voice that it uses for lowercase letters. 
and one that it uses for you know capital letters. So it'll be like T and then T. Like, okay, well now I know that was a capital letter. And so the correlation between the sound of their voice, the pitch of the voice and their actions, uh, that was very interesting to me that um, that was spot on. Yeah, definitely. Moving on to the final segment. Connecting the dots, John, as always, you're going to have a story for us, a personal experience. What are you going to talk about today? Well, inspired by Santino's selection of an F1 driver, I thought about an experience uh, that I've had a couple of times, and I did have it again over the weekend. Uh, So I've talked about it before on the program, but... I did lose my eyesight, you know, a little bit later in life so that I was able to drive for a couple of years. It wasn't easy and I was never really allowed to drive at night, but I was able to operate a vehicle for a couple of years. But that has not been the case for a really long time now. And oftentimes, particularly living in a city like Los Angeles, um, it can bum me out that I don't have the ability to get behind the wheel of a car and drive and, and and do all that. However, there's one great glaring wondrous exception to that rule. That is bumper cars. So this weekend, I actually got to go to the Ventura County Fair with my wife and uh, my sister-in-law and told them kind of going into it like, hey guys, I bet you never thought that you would see me operate a moving vehicle. I'm going to prove to you that is a reality. So we get to the fair, can't wait to go on the bumper cars. I put my cane away before kind of getting up to the front, um, closer to the ride. And um, I have to tell you, that I was reminded of Al Pacino's uh, Ferrari driving scene in Scent of a Woman. There is something about being behind the wheel of a moving vehicle. doesn't matter if it's a go-kart or a tractor or a Cadillac Escalade, that you can operate this moving, I mean, you're operating a moving weapon in it to an extent, in addition to it being a form of transportation. And that feeling overcame me when I sat down inside this lowly bumper car at the Ventura County Fairgrounds. I put my right foot on the gas pedal, smiled. I kind of, in an exaggerated way, put my right arm like kind of out, like, hey, 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 what you know, what are we doing here? And uh, just drove around running into uh, any and all vehicles that were in my path. Uh, my wife hunted me down and uh, definitely rammed into the backside of the bumper car. But I cannot describe how much fun it truly was to be behind the wheel of a vehicle. Something, uh, if I, if bumper cars didn't exist, uh, yeah, probably a, a no-go uh, for all time. 
but bumper cars do exist. And um, provided you are in a safely um, put together uh, a bumper car uh, ride, you can do it. And for those that have never been able to drive, used to be able to drive and can no longer because they can't see well enough to do it, I highly recommend whatever county fair you're closest to, just pretend for a little bit, put the cane away and uh, make a go of it inside the wheel of a bumper car. Yeah, that's an awesome story just because, uh, like you said, you haven't been able to have that experience of driving in, in, in a while. So to be able to do that and kind of just let loose and have that experience, I think it's really, really cool. Um, and it, it also just shows that you can still almost get that feeling of being behind the wheel of a car, uh, you know, quote unquote, without being able to actually go driving on the highway going 70 miles per, you know what I mean? That kind of thing, obviously, because you still get that slight experience without being able to fully, fully operate a motorized. Right. And uh, yeah, so much fun. I thought of, as I say, the sequence in Scent of a Woman where you know, visually impaired Al Pacino drives a Ferrari at high speed really seems uh, quite unrealistic in the aftermath of oh, my yeah. bumper cars experience. But that being said, uh, and it ties in with the inductee into our Handprints Hall of Fame this week. There was a challenge put in his way, figured out a workaround, and uh, his life was all the better for it. Just like, um, I believe, that bumper cars experience enhanced my own life. And uh, for all those dealing with visual conditions, um, provided that you can do it safely, bumper cars are a fun alternative to actually driving. Yeah, most definitely. Guys, we are so happy to be back. We are so happy to bring you yet another episode of Visionaries. We will once again be bringing you consistent episodes every single week. Make sure to go on Instagram and follow us at visionaries underscore podcast. I'm posting every single notification. Every time an episode goes up on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you can find out through our Instagram. Go on Spotify, listen. This is our 18th episode. Go listen to all 17 of our other episodes. Give us a rating if you like what you hear. Share it, post it, do whatever you want with it. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for listening to another great episode of Visionaries, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks a lot, guys.